Welcome again to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, that virtual church classroom Bible study presented as a podcast each week by Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana, and hosted by me, Pastor Dan, with a lot of help from my daughter, Bethany. This is uh, episode 30 of our Revelation Bible study, and uh, it is being recorded on uh, November the... uh, 20th, <laughs> November the 20th, 2018, episode 30, recorded on November 20th, 2018, and it is another way that we try to serve the people of God with opportunities to learn and to grow in their uh, knowledge of God and relationship with God through heart and mind, both ours and our Lord's. That's the goal. It is not meant to replace what you would be doing if you were part of a local church so please be a part of a local church and uh, if you happen to be in the Jasper area well please feel free to drop in and see us at Shiloh United Methodist Church. For now it's time to worship. Today's psalm reading is Psalm 31. Psalm 31, for the director of music, a psalm of David. If you, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge, let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness, turn your ear to me, come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, since you are my rock and my fortress. For the sake of your name, lead and guide me, free me from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love. For you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in the spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish, and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am a dread to my friends, those who see me, on the street flee from me i have forgotten i am forgotten by them as though i were dead i have become like broken pottery for i hear the slander of many there is terror on every side they conspire against me and plot to take my life but i trust in you o lord i say you are my god my times are in your hands deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, 
you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling you keep them safe from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. In my alarm I said, I am cut off <clears throat> from your sight, yet you heard my cry for mercy. And when I called to you for help, love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the fruit, the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. God, this psalm echoes certain things we've heard since it was composed. <clears throat> we've heard the voice of our Lord saying, Into your hands I commend my spirit. We have heard his affliction, his suffering. Oh Lord, we're reminded that there is no suffering, no difficulty that we've experienced that is unknown to you in your flesh. You have walked where we walk. <clears throat> you have lived as we've lived. You've known our griefs and sorrows. You have known our suffering and pain. You've known our longings. And you have known our hopes and dreams. And so, Lord, there's nothing about our life in you that isn't a sacred trust. So, God, as we come today to study your word again, <clears throat> hearing of the terrors of the time when your wrath is poured out on the earth we are reminded of the words of this psalm that say to us that that the enemy will indeed receive the due repent uh, repentance the due retribution oh god the enemy will receive the retribution and that is our comfort when we want to see justice but lord make us slow like you to seek justice since sometimes we are lucky we don't get what we deserve oh god help us then to interpret these words to know you with our hearts and minds so that we can be all the more aware of you in our world and in our times as the psalmist said today our times are in your hands amen Bethany, we've reached the dreaded bowls of wrath. Uh, last time we read, what, the first part of chapter 16? Did we read? Uh, no. Or no. 
We read all of fifteen. All of fifteen. Yes. Okay, so we're at the we are at the first. Which part. is almost like the beginning of chapter sixteen. I got it. It's like you. the preface. Yeah, yeah, and um, we decided it was probably going to be a good idea to just wait and tackle these bowls of wrath mm-hmm. now. So um, I guess the best thing to do right now is just go ahead and read and uh and then we'll see where we get with that Mm -hmm. um let's see why don't you read down to uh, verse 12. okay then i heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels go pour out the seven bowls of god's wrath on the earth the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worship his image the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and everything, every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. And then the sixth? The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east. Okay. All right. So these bowls seem remarkably reminiscent of the plagues against Egypt. Mm -hmm. I guess that's pretty obvious. I've had this creeping crud all mm. evening. <clears throat> Sorry about that, folks. And uh, what I've noticed is is that uh, the there's a parallel, you know. So there are a couple of things that I was thinking that were worth noting um, in in a, in my bizarre way that I look at these things, mm-hmm. which isn't so out of this world. But I just anyway, strange choice of words, otherworldly. So I, I find every time I read Exodus or revisit the story of Moses and the escape from Egypt that this particular brand of Egyptians was not God's favorite people by any stretch. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to make this a lesson about them, but... I want to I want to draw a parallel here, okay? It's interesting to me that the same sort of plagues or bowls of wrath mm-hmm. were poured out against Pharaoh, who saw himself as God, and whose people worshipped him unconditionally. And by the way, these people were really into idols. They love building statues of their pharaohs and all that jazz, right? There's, there's still some in Egypt that yeah, are kind a, of big. A few, yeah. <laughs> you know. So that's an interesting similarity to this um, 
to this in that we've got uh, the Beast mm-hmm. and his uh, uh, prime minister, Wingman. high priest, whatever, who's constructed this image of him mm-hmm. that 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 actually uh, exudes the power. You know, he's like he's like the publicist. Yeah, you know, and so isn't it funny how it's. It's not that hard to imagine Egypt being this way mm-hmm. at the time of the Exodus. Mm-hmm. And what I would say, just for the sake of, of uh, clarification, is if my expensive seminary training hasn't taught me very many things, at least I've learned this. Not every pharaoh came from Egypt. The pharaohs were, uh, you know, kind of world leaders who sought the, the throne of Egypt. And... Uh, so Egypt was kind of the center of the world in those days, and people took that throne, you know. Um, and so the the Egyptians that Abraham knew, and Isaac, and Joseph, th- those Egyptians, I guess they weren't so bad, really. In fact, Abraham and Isaac, uh, or Abraham rather, uh, you know, he even kind of negotiates with mm-hmm the Egyptian Pharaoh and like, you know, there's, 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 you know, and the, and the Pharaoh says, Hey man, you know, why'd you do this? You know? So there's a, there's a sort of equality among them, you know, well, but the, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, I know what you're talking about, but even if you want to simplify it down to like, even if they all were Egyptian, there's dynastic trends. Right. So, right. Families are going to have different priorities and different different standards of practice as, as rulers, too. Right. So one family may have been in place with Abraham that was a totally different family then, and we know it was a different family. Right. Well, and, and so this guy that's in charge at the time of the Exodus, it even says in the Bible that things were going okay, and then... The, the pharaoh changed. Mm-hmm. Well, there's legitimate evidence that indicates that around 400 years or so uh, into the relationship with the Jews, as it's recorded in the Bible, a certain brand of Egyptians took control, and they were called the Hyksos, mm-hmm. H-Y-K-S-O-S. And you can look this up and Google it or whatever. And and what's really interesting to me is, is God really had it in for those guys. Mm-hmm. He didn't like them at all. And in the Old Testament, we see numerous incidences where God really has it in for certain people groups. And it's been the source of frustration for a lot of people in the, uh, you know, who are perhaps less experienced with the Bible. And they're trying to understand why God does certain things you know, um, that don't make sense because we look at it through a human lens. But mm-hmm. but here's the thing. Stop and think for a minute that this was a Egyptian ruler who, when confronted by God's power, as it was demonstrated by Moses, demonstrated a certain amount of his own power, too. And there's an incident that's recorded in the book of Exodus where... Um, the uh, Pharaoh's priests turned their staffs into snakes. Mm-hmm. 
uh, serpents is the yeah, actual I mean, word. Yeah, there's a specific wording there that's they, important. Yeah, they knew they they were turning their sticks into the same word for serpent that was used in the Garden of Eden, which is not a snake. No. It's literally we need like to stop a dragon. Being hard on snakes. Yeah, it's a dragon. Yes. Roll the clock forward. Yep. To Revelation, we've already seen a dragon, mm-hmm. and it's Satan. Mm-hmm. And the serpent is Satan. Mm-hmm. And so Pharaoh was in league with Satan. That's basically what's happening. And Satan has put Pharaoh in this position. And as we have noted in other stories and other teachings and things in the life of the church, Satan has been busy trying to undo God's plan right. for a very long yeah. time. And he knows the people of Israel are the key to God's plan. So what does he do? He sets up a puppet ruler in the Hyksos brand of of Egypt Mm -hmm. and uses them to it uses him to try to destroy Israel. So I mean it's just it's a really remarkable pattern that repeats itself over Mm -hmm. and over in the Bible. So now we get to the end of time and what's happening? The same scenario is happening, and God responds in basically the same way. They have blood, they have boils, they have fire, hail. You know, all of these things are happening pretty much the same way. Well, and, like, the ones that aren't, I feel like we have heard about because, like, yeah, there's no, like, mass influx of locusts yeah those one creatures coming up out of the bowels of the earth were described as looking like gigantic locust things yeah they were there locusts yeah so they were still there yeah they just weren't the bulls yeah no it's true and and uh i so that was point one point two is is that you can see and it's been a while since we've talked about this, but you'll recall that we've been talking off and on about how these could be, um, you know, somewhat predictable or, or easy to envision solar events or, or like things like that. In other words, a solar flare is something we're familiar with. We understand that those happen. Mm-hmm. We understand that if they're big enough, they can tear up the earth pretty good. Mm-hmm. We understand if the atmosphere has been changed dramatically by cataclysmic events, which Everything have already occurred. Already happened, yeah. So given the condition of the earth as it is anyway, now something like a solar flare happens or something like, you know, some sort of intensity of the of the sun suddenly we're seeing all these conditions occur Mm -hmm. and then the sun goes out well that almost sounds like a nova you know uh and and so who knows exactly what happens but it goes dark and there's no light at all i mean you throw the science and our sun is eventually going to go supernova because all suns do Mm mm-hmm so we could be. Seems looking, like God's timing would be making more sense than ours does. Yeah. So, if you just look at what's being described and given what we know because we watched the Discovery Channel or paid attention in sixth grade science or whatever, we know that our sun could flare, mm-hmm. create in a scorching conditions on the Earth, and then go out. Mm-hmm. If we're lucky, that's all it does. I say we. I'm hoping I'm not there, but. I believe I'm not going to be there if it ties into Scripture the way mm-hmm. it looks like it does. But, you know, 
sometimes they blow up and everything around them goes too. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> this one, if it's even remotely related to the scripture that we're reading, would indicate that it gets really, really hot and then it goes out. Mm -hmm. And there is no light. I mean, it's there's no sun. Yeah. You know. Um, Which, you know, we've talked about it being Genesis in reverse, and that's super creepy because the light's gone. Let there be light, and then the light goes out. And yeah. We don't want to be on Earth at that point. So this is where it gets really ugly. And I don't know that there's much more you can say about those bowls of wrath, you know. I was just going to say that I think it's interesting, and I even went back and looked at the blood plague in Exodus. I think it's interesting that in this one, the blood is specifically described as being like that of a dead man. Mm -hmm. Because blood that is in a dead body isn't warm. Right. It's not flowing, so it coagulates, and it's just like thick molasses -y. Like, it's not... Yeah. It, there's like, no oxygen And there's no it. water. Like, the water is disappearing, so it the becomes... Serum going, yeah. It becomes a very, like, yucky, gunky, like... Because, I, like, I don't know, like, in Prince of Egypt and the Ten Commandments and, like, all mm -hmm. the, the movie versions, the, like, the Nile is still flowing. Like, it's still water. Look, like, it looks like water. It's just red. Right. Well, and, you know, in and the Cecil B. DeMille like, version, it, it looks an awful lot like somebody put food coloring right. in the water. Which is fine because, like, you know, it's a great movie still. But, yeah. but and, and it does say, like, the, the Nile stank and you couldn't drink it and stuff, which makes it almost sound like there was... Like, it was stagnant. But this, like, no wonder everything's dead because what what living creature in the sea can swim through molasses? Right. Like, it's not... So I just think it's interesting that it's specifically sure. that kind of blood. Sure. You know... Because blood is also a symbol of life. Seawater and freshwater both are teeming with life. Yeah. Like, Normally. microscopic life. And yeah. not even that would be able to survive in coagulated blood. And blood is a symbol of life. So, like... That part always kind of is interesting to me because, like, blood blood killing things is kind of a really weird irony. But in this case, like, it's already dead blood. Yep. yep. So it's not, like, there's no life to it. So I just thought that was interesting. I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. I was just looking to see where we pick up from here. You know what verse 13 says, don't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. <laughs> Coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, They're and from the mouth the of the false prophet. So there's the frogs. Mm -hmm. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of the of God Almighty. Look, I am going, I am, bleh, this is why you do the reading. <laughs> Go ahead, take over. Well, I would just like to point out that last time we saw red ink was like, I don't even remember. It was several, several chapters ago. Well, the letters from Jesus mainly. Right, but it was. I think there was one like maybe chapter four. Oh. Yeah. yeah, chapter four is the last time we saw red ink, but verse fifteen that I'm about to read is in red, guys. Yeah. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Wow. Which is also in quotes. And that's Jesus talking, in case you don't know what we mean right. by red yes, ink. Right, yes, sorry. It's the first time Jesus has talked in Revelation since chapter 4. Yep. But he's still here, guys. And he says, I'm coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. And the kind of shame and nakedness that's being described here, I'm certain, translates back to the same naked shame that they felt when Adam and Eve had sinned against God. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, this is the time to be found righteous. And it's also Genesis in reverse. Mm -hmm. We're going backward in time through Genesis. Now we're at the point where God enters the garden looking for Adam and Eve and they're hiding from him because they're ashamed mm -hmm. of their sin. Mm -hmm. And so now Jesus, God in the flesh, is saying, I'm coming. Don't let me find you naked. I mean, it's it's like... <laughs> And it really, it also sounds Genesis in reverse. so much like he's quoting himself because yeah. he, I mean, he says this to his apostles. Yeah. Yeah. Like the whole thing about like the house, the thief coming in the night mm -hmm. to the house. And so, well, and what's interesting know, is, he, so he's who's consistent. Yeah. And so who's he talking to here? Mm. Um, it sounds a little bit like there might be some remnant still. Uh, and Which maybe not, uh, remnant's not really the right word. There may be yet new believers. Yeah, new converts. There may be people who have, since all of this has gone down, have have refused to take the mark, which makes them still available to the salvation. And maybe he's saying, don't give up, I'm on my way. But then you read verse 16, and and because I know where this is going, <laughs> I've read this before. He also seems to be announcing to the kings of the earth, "Get ready, I'm coming. You better get Throwing ready." Throwing down the gun. Yeah, yeah, because so yeah, you so, make your breathing. Yeah, down? read on, please. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, "It is done." Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earth -like, earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the city of the nations collapsed. Cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Hmm. And, of course, in this case, it's important to remember that uh, at this point, Satan has set up his own version of the Trinity. He's set up his own temple, and it's Babylon. And so he's basically trying to do God better than God. At least that's been his motive from the very beginning. Yeah, because he's vain. So... You know, it's just funny because because God is basically taking aim now at, you know, this. You could see the focus narrowing. It started way back in the beginning. The whole world, the whole earth. I was trying to say earth and world in the same word. The whole earth is like we know it. Mm -hmm. But by the time all of this has happened, the focus is narrowed down to this one little piece of real estate, basically. Mm -hmm. 
and the nations because surrounding it's the, it. Because it's the real estate that's left because everything else keeps that's disappearing. Right. That's right. Everything else is just it's gone, you know. There's no there's not even any oceans anymore. Yeah. So so we're down to this little I but but wasn't doesn't that remind you of the period that is described and implied between Genesis one and Genesis two? Mm-hmm. Where there's chaos and disorder that gap that some people talk about mm-hmm. and literally the creation has been reduced to chaos. Mm-hmm. And in a way, again, this is a theory because you can't pull it directly out of scripture, but there's enough evidence of scripture just to suggest that while uh, for a time the earth was ruled by Satan and the demonic forces that went with him or the fallen angels. And that was a, ki- a time of chaos. Mm-hmm. And now in Revelation, the world is ruled by Satan and the denom- demonic forces. I, gosh, this is bad. I'm speaking in tongues. Mm. And uh, so, you know, it's just really amazing how, how the, the book begins and ends in the same way, really. Mm-hmm. Well, sort of. We haven't gotten to the ending. This this one has got a better ending, yeah. you know, yeah. than it doesn't end in chaos, but it it is going full circle. Mm-hmm. It's it's literally when when Jesus says I'll be with you always till the end of the age, and the age he's describing is the Bible age. It's it's well, the era of the Bible. I guess if you're trying to defeat something or someone that functions completely in entropy you have to create entropy yeah i get you like you have to have you have to fight the chaos with the chaos i guess Mm -hmm. you you know you can't combat it (laughs) that's really neat um that almost feels like an affirmation from god i was having a conversation with a pastor colleague today and he was talking about an all too typical problem in churches, especially old established churches. Mm-hmm. There are certain people who have long ago lost sight of what this is really about. They'll be the only ones that you can't convince that, you know, they are convinced that they're as righteous as they come, but they are committed to something that is actually destructive to mm-hmm. the whole mission and ministry of the church. How do you get these people to let go of their grip and quit holding the church hostage. Well, it never works to try to negotiate peacefully and some, you know, because they've become so entrenched that Mm -hmm. really the only thing that they want is to be right. And they're, you know, he was telling me that in a particular case uh, that that I've seen many times in my career, Mm -hmm. um, he's got a case where someone looked the, particular antagonist right in the eye and said what does a win look like for you and the person said i don't know Mm -hmm. i just know that i don't want this to happen Mm -hmm. and as long as i breathe i'm not going to let it happen and and yet it so it isn't so much that they want to win it's that they want to make sure that the people who disagree with them lose Mm -hmm. well if that ain't the devil and how do you convince that person that they're actually talking more like the devil than the jesus they claim to worship well 
you can't really. And so my advice to him was, is you know what you have to do is you have to use their own tactics against them. And I don't mean that you do it the same way they do it or in the same spirit they Mm do. But if they're trying to systematically isolate their enemies, then you systematically reposition the ones who are being isolated. Mm -hmm. And you systematically isolate the antagonist so that all of a sudden it dawns on them that no one's with them anymore. And they're the ones that have been isolated. Mm -hmm. So you really just take their isolation tactics, which is usually kind of a triangulation. So you you literally have to use their isolation tactic and reverse it on them. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to kind of put a mirror up and make their, their arrow, you know, somehow warp back at them. And then eventually they realize they've been completely isolated and defeated. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I advocate hurting your enemies, but at some point you have to admit that there are enemies of God and that they stand in opposition to the church, which is the body of Christ. And that some people, especially us clergy, have to have the courage to fight the enemy and to recognize that these are people that are lovable in many ways, but there is a greater enemy who's using them, who's, who's causing all of this discord and pain. And so you have to realize that you're battling the enemy. Mm-hmm. And as much as you don't want people to feel as though you're mistreating them or for those people to accuse you of all these hurtful things, in the end, that's the enemy talking. And so I have to listen. I have to close my eyes and not see a person. I have to listen to the voice of the enemy. And when I hear the enemy, I don't hear that person. I hear exactly the same language that's in Scripture. Mm -hmm. I witness the same tactics of the enemy that is in Scripture. And so my only safe way to stand in opposition to people who are working for the enemy, even though they seem like saints of the earth, in certain other ways is by being able to identify how what they're saying and doing mirrors what the Satan does in the Bible, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's the only, that's the only way I can, uh, how do you, you know, who is my enemy? Well, it all really did, you know, in, in American politics, in my life, you know, we've, we've been allies with Afghanistan and now they're the enemy kind of thing, you know, that's not a whole country, but, but in my lifetime, I've seen this over and over yeah. again. You know, we're allies with the Soviets until the war's over, and now they're our Cold, uh, cold War enemy, you know. Mm-hmm. So enemies and allies change positions in our world all the time. So what makes them your enemy? So if you're in the church and you're the body of Christ, how do you identify your enemy? Well, first you have to know who your enemy is and what the enemy looks like. And you have to recognize that it isn't the people. Yeah. Per se. It, it's, I think even before that, you need to know what you stand for. Right. Like, how do you know your enemy if you don't know? Right. Who well, you are? so if you're a uh, if you're really devoted to Christ in the way that the Bible really expects us to be, mm-hmm. then you know that the only enemy you have is Christ's enemy. And you know that the only enemy that you have to stand in opposition to is his enemy. But mm-hmm. you don't stand in front of Christ to protect him from the enemy. He stands in front of you to protect you from the enemy. Your job is to 
not go around him to engage the enemy or be so dumb that you go around him because you think the enemy is not the enemy, you know. So I know it sounds a little crazy, but it all comes back around. It is the, the book of Revelation, and, and this goes back to our premise. We're at episode 30 this week. Mm-hmm. 30 episodes ago, we started by saying to people, this book has so much to teach you that you didn't know was there. Mm-hmm. And this book teaches us so much about the nature of heaven and earth, good and evil, Christ the Lord and Satan the enemy, you know, and the dark, demonic, horrible powers that would be unleashed if he wasn't kept in check. No wonder scripture tells us that Jesus Christ holds the universe together Mm -hmm. because it's almost like he's keeping the lid on the pot where all the weird demons come from, that kind of thing. I mean, it's really quite amazing. And so this book just brings us back to the reality that there's always this war with the enemy of God. And we're part of that war, you know. Uh, I also, I also yeah. think, well, I was just think, sitting here thinking about it. And I like there are a couple things. So one, it also seems like like he's fighting entropy with entropy, but he's also stripping it down like. Almost like, okay, Satan, yes, you won some people over. And that's terrible because God wants every person to be in his fold. But God, like, he's stripping it down more and more and more. So it's like, yeah, so you got some people. Now what? What's left? Like, what are you going to do with them? There's nothing left on earth. We're getting back to where you started because you left heaven. And it, like, brings it all the way back. And the other thing I think is kind of humorous is it goes back to the devil's vanity and pride he has the whole playbook yeah just like we all do and he still loses yeah and i think he's just so vain he must be so vain Mm -hmm. because he knows he loses and like every single thing is in here we're reading it yep it's gonna go badly for him and it already is going badly for him and the earth is disappearing before his eyes. He doesn't have people to tempt. Mm-hmm. And yet he still loses because I think he's just so, you know, so up his own behind. <laughs> to put it in purely biblical terms, right? <laughs> in Bethany speak. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's really interesting cause, because really I, I think that there are two things that you... Uh, made me think of one that I used to think quite a lot even when I was a teenager studying this because I've actually been studying the Bible and and the book of Revelation in particular uh, since I was 15 or 16 years old and I started with the book of Revelation because I got surrounded by all these uh, Bible Belt friends (laughs) who and and I, I love them dearly. I really do. And I thank God for what they've done in my life. But it makes me sad sometimes to see how they are basically just practicing garden variety religion, some of them. And, and yet they launched me, a person that they thought was a really lost heathen because <laughs> I was a Catholic kid from the East, you know. And it's always been remarkable to me because as I look back, they challenged me to find out what they were talking about. So I looked. Yeah. And immediately I started knowing more about everything it says mm-hmm. than 
they did because they just quoted what Pastor So-and-so said last Sunday night or whatever. And I don't mean any disrespect to him. It's just that it taught me a long time ago. But critical thinking. We got critical thinking. Exactly. Now, <laughs> I digressed. And the funny thing is I was absolutely a horrific high school student at the same time. And nobody thought that I had any real potential. You got to have things you care about learning. You though. know, and uh, it's just funny how all that worked mm -hmm. out. But anyway, I what I was going to say is back then I thought, okay, Satan knows how it goes, but he's just outraged. And so all this evil that he does, it's just outrage. He's just trying to hurt God every way he could think of. But the longer I live and the more people I've dealt with in the name of the church. Yes. Because I have known so many people in the name of the church. People who claim to love Jesus, who are in flat out denial. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. And I, I think the it old, there are none so blind pride. as those who will not see. Yeah. Right? I've seen this blindness of spirit, and I've seen it over and over again, and I am boggled by this. They, they're convinced that they're Christian. And I'm not trying to say that I have some way to know whether they are or they aren't. But what I do know is, is that you can look at them, point at the sun, and say, isn't that bright and hot? And they'll look at you and go, no, it's purple and it's kind of cold. Right. And you just kind of think. I... Well, and if all that, like, if, if that all comes from Satan, then he must be the primo example of that. I believe so. Yeah. And of course. And it all, I, I think it all stems from pride, which I think yeah. he's real full of. And, and pride is the ultimate description of sin. Yeah. And what's amazing to me is I've witnessed so much of it in church people. And I don't profess to be a perfect example of a Christian. This is why it's always hard for me to talk about, because even now I'm feeling a certain twinge of guilt and embarrassment and fear because I'm making it a matter of record that I find some church people to be unbelievably prideful and blind. Well, I will say that I think it's everywhere, not just church. Well, yeah. I mean, if that Absolutely. helps any. Like... But it's in my context. And why I talk about it in my context is my fear sure. comes from the reality that those people expect a certain kind of behavior from me that doesn't include in accusing some of the members of being prideful mm -hmm. and, and arrogant and blind. Mm -hmm. And so here I am saying it on record, knowing that there could be some sort of pushback from people because maybe they think I'm talking about them, but I'm not talking about anyone in particular. But I also think one of the most important things that I've ever learned, and I know it's important because I've learned it in church and I learned it like as I was coming up through school and preparing for my vocation. Yeah. And we were talking about it the other night. One of the most important things that I have learned is to know your own weaknesses, know your own biases, and then do something about them. Right. And that doesn't mean you're going to be a perfect person. It just means that you can say, I talk too much sometimes. I like just. And that demonstrates humility, and which just is being the key able, to salvation. And you don't even have to really. Yes, it helps to be able to say, like, if someone is frustrated with you, it helps to be able to check yourself to them. 
but you don't have to. It's like, it can be a very deeply personal thing just to be like, you know, I know that sometimes I do this and I want to work on that. Yeah. And you don't even have to go around to people and be like, so I know I'm like super annoying sometimes when I do this and I'm working on it. You can just start working on it because people will notice and they're not going to come out and be like, mm-hmm. wow, you've really changed. You're a whole lot more enjoyable to be around. They're just, they're going to naturally, and they're going to see that in you and be like, hey, I wonder what, like, yep. what's changed them. Hmm. Yeah. But and I mean, and I know it's important because like I said, it's, it's across the board. It's like, it's something that I'm, that you hear everywhere. And obviously I came from a psychology background, so that's a lot about being in tune with your own mind and thinking about those things, but I don't know. No, I think, I, it, I I think that, that as often as it comes up, that's a really important thing. You have to you have to be able to acknowledge where you have weaknesses and in spirit and mind. I know that you're a Christian woman, and that is why you wouldn't do this from a purely secular uh, scientific point of view, but you've been trained in that. Mm-hmm. So I could sit here as one who's trained in theology and doctrine and Bible and all that. You could sit there as one who's trained in psychology and so forth. And we would both come to the same conclusion. Vanity and pride will lead to self-destruction. Absolutely. And humility will lead to a kind of peace that passes all understanding. And those things are true whether you're a Bible believer or purely humanistic feels a lot better when you have Jesus, too, though. Well, sure. <laughs> but the only way to Jesus is through humility. Oh, yeah. And the only way to be in Absolutely. favor with God is to humble yourself. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people who are really proud. Mm-hmm. And their church and their character and their reputation all mean a lot to them, but only as much as it feeds their vanity and pride which is just unbelievable to me, but it's so easy to be there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if, if somehow hearing this is breaking through in a way that you've never experienced before, just tell God, am I blind? Just ask him, am I blind? Have I been blind? Will you open my eyes so I could see, please? You know, tell God that you don't want to be blind if this is registering with you in any way. Mm-hmm. But well, I think it's just good to periodically ask yourself yeah. where the blind spots are. And, and it's, a, it's a tricky fine line too, I think, because like I want I, like, I to take pride in my work and I do I, I do and like the things I take pride in are like when I see a student succeed and it's not because of me, but I know that I got to be a part of it. And, and it can be tricky. Because you don't want to get such a big head where you're like, you know, like using myself as an example, being like, well, I'm the best school counselor the school corporation has ever seen. What would they do without me? Like, and it, but it's hard because sometimes you have you have a really big win, yeah. and you're like, man, what would they do without me? And then you you have to come back and be like, oh, they'd be fine. They'd no, I, I get like, that. It's, it, but it is tricky. You know, I've I've left behind four churches in my twenty three, four years of of ministry, and they've all carried on without Mm -hmm. me. Although I have to say, while I was there, many people told me they thought I was the best pastor they ever had. But they're fine with someone who's apparently less, (laughs) but they're not. Yeah. Maybe they're the best pastor that they ever had. And that'd be great if it was true. And 
we need to, like, I guess it just goes back to what you said and humbling ourselves and we need to make it about God. Right. So, like, exactly. when I get a big win at school, I try to, like, sit back and go, you know what, that was awesome. Thank you, God, for equipping me yeah. to do this vocation. Because I consider my job a calling. Yeah. And I'm not going to, I don't want to have ownership over that because I wouldn't, I don't think I would be, and I'm I'm not the best school counselor in the world, guys. I've I, like I I just met some of the coolest school counselors ever last week, and it was amazing. But I want to be the best school counselor that God has made me to be. Exactly. For those kids, now, and I want to be, be the best pastor, exactly. best father, best husband that God made me to be. Where I've been placed. Do so. my personal best because that's the best way to glorify God. Right. And to do it within His gifts and graces because that's what He made me for. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, we've digressed a little, well, not really, I mean, but we've digressed a little from the text, but that's because we're beginning to see what happens when Satan gets what he thinks he wants. Right. It's dark, chaotic, and there's nothing but war and evil and, you know. And And there's not even really, like, things to fight over anymore. Like, there's you know, not land to fight over. There's not people to fight over. It's all gone. If your depraved nature and pride have taken you down so far, you literally have collapsed into a small piece of real estate in total darkness where you're the center of everything. That That's literally what's being said here. And like, what's a city worth if there's no one or yeah. nothing in it? Is it a city? Yeah. So, you know... The old saying, no person, well, it's no man is an island. Um, unless you're Satan. Unless apparently. you're Satan. Well, I think we covered that but chapter. But it says the islands are all gone, so <laughs> no islands either. Well, okay. <laughs> so there's one land mass that is intact right now. Yeah, I don't know how that works, but, but yeah. maybe it's like Pangea. <laughs> All right, we've covered chapter 16. That means the next time we do 17, mm-hmm. um, the woman on the beast. We will uh, come back soon with episode 31. We love your comments and questions. Love to hear from you. I've had a few people tell me lately, I know you want to hear from us, but I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just absorbing it all, and, and, and that's true. Even my mother, your grandmother, said to me, I'd like to comment just because you're my son and I'm really proud of you for being so smart. But at the same time, she's like, I just, I just absorb it all and don't know what to say. So thank you, Mom, for being proud of me. <laughs> yes, thanks. I love you. You took good care of us. And that's why we were able to grow up and be so smart and have beautiful And your cobbler was so yummy the other day. <laughs> and there's Since that. I know you're listening. <laughs> I did get a really great email from Sarah. And, uh, and and it's really quite a long uh, uh, question. Uh, not, no, it's not that it's that long, Sarah. Don't feel bad. It's wonderful. It's a well thought the reflection out. is yeah. really, really awesome. So, so she says, uh, Pastor Dan and Bethany, I'm sorry it has taken some time to email this. Over the last few episodes of the Revelation study, I've been contemplating the condition of our society at the time and to the fullest extent what it will really be like. Uh, Since Revelation 7, when we were first discussing the 144,000, I have been thinking about how these individuals will discover God, or better yet, Jesus, with the church, 
not there to openly evangelize about the path to God through Jesus. These past few weeks, we have also witnessed the change of the seasons, the leaves changing, the showing the brilliance of God's design in the beautiful kaleidoscope of color. With this change, we know the cycle. The fall brings this change, which then makes way for new life, new growth. In the spring, the colors change to bright green, and we have renewal of the earth, so to speak. When I look around and see signs of God everywhere, these signs help me affirm that God is here on earth and working among us. As we move to Revelation 14, when we realize that these 144,000 have been enduring all types of persecution and the condition of earth is deplorable and God has completely removed himself from the earth. What does that really mean? I understand the post-apocalyptic thinking that is depicted in movies, books, etc., but what does it really mean for God to be removed from the earth? And I keep thinking about the 144,000 in relation to that. How do they find God? If God is removed from the earth, that means no new life. If God is the only one who can actually give life, no new life will be on earth. So no tree will grow, no flowers, birds, etc. No new births? I am thinking that mothers will not be able to produce life. For that is the greatest miracle of, and display of God. Satan will have reign to birth whatever he pleases. Mm -hmm. As the blood begins to flow on earth and the wrath of God is poured out, the call for perseverance in the word, I still cannot help but think of how these individuals left on earth will find God. I have only one thought. If the stuff of earth is left, then what stuff are we creating? Does it glorify God in every way so that those who are left can still see him even in his physical sign, even if his physical signs are gone? It makes me evaluate what I am creating. Does it glorify God so that when all is lost, who are left can still persevere? So, and then she says, thank you for doing this study. So some really great observations mm -hmm. there. And I, I wrote her a reply, which I'd like to share with everybody because, uh, you know, I also said we try to flesh this out a little bit. But thank you for the thoughtful email. These are excellent observations. Bethany and I were both a little tired yesterday and postponed the recording of the last <laughs> podcast. Yeah, anyway, we're recording this a couple of days later than usual. Um, we will respond in depth there. Hopefully we're doing that now. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> For now, I'd like to point you toward Revelation 7. In that chapter, the calling of the 144,000 is described. There are two interesting points to suggest they were especially prepared for their unique role. First, the angels are not allowed to disconnect the earth's environments from God's Christ's, really. Look at Colossians 1, 15 to 17. God's control until the 144,000 have been marked. So basically I'm saying that, that it describes how they're given, uh, the, the angels are, are given uh, sort of the, the uh, they're getting ready to, 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 to let God's, take God's hands off the wheel, so to speak. Uh, and, and uh, or their, their hands, you know, maybe God's got them steering, you mm -hmm. know, it's like Captain Picard or something, you know, he's, God's sitting there going, you know, you make it so, gone. right, yeah, you know, so basically he's telling them just leave it alone, you know, go, go away, let it go. Yeah. But anyway, before he does that, these, these 144,000 have to be sealed. 
So I think it's literally a mark, mm -hmm. but I also don't know that it doesn't mean a lot more. Yeah. I think it could mean a lot more. I think that they could be, uh, Sarah mentioned that she thought they were suffering in particular ways, but I'm not sure that they are suffering as much as those people they convert. Okay. You know, I, I don't know, yeah. but, but I'm taking this idea that these 144,000 evangelists are sealed, meaning that they've been sort of, you know, knighted and given armor, so to speak, in a spiritual sense. They've got a particular role to fulfill, and so God has imparted everything they need. Uh, God has imparted everything they need to them. Mm -hmm so that they can uh, make this uh, mission that they're going to fulfill happen. And so I think that their story is really tied up in that seal okay. and whatever that sealing means. You know, because when I think of a seal, there are a couple of ways I look at it. A seal can be a mark of distinction, but it can also be something you put over a bowl full of jello. You know, I mean, you, you put a seal on something. And so I wonder if in a way their seal is a mark that they've been, or, or I don't even smoke, but like a pack of cigarettes has a seal on it. Mm -hmm. And, and that seal is an indication liquor has a seal on it, you know, and, and certain other things because they're regulated. They've got a seal that says they've been properly processed right or like the seals on the gas pumps so that you know nobody's been into it right so so really that's kind of the same thing and that i'm seeing in my mind's okay. eye these guys have been prepared a certain way so so then you know uh, but she makes these really fascinating points about how um there's really quite an interesting um set of conditions in place you know because if god's not there to sustain life then does life even happen anymore? yeah i think that's really interesting because i had not thought about that yeah i think because it's sort of unfathomable like like it's kind of i i can't imagine a world where there's not trees growing and it's conceivable life, then like that every time grass, something dies that's the end that's it it's not like there's another one being born somewhere yeah it's like a total extinction event yeah when the last elephant dies, that's it. Yeah. Like, yeah, that, that's crazy. Yeah, so that's a really neat insight. Really, and I also love what she, I think that what she said in the end of her email is a perfect place to end with. Because I love what she says about, like, the stuff of Earth. Like, yeah. what stuff are we leaving for, the, for those people to find, to, yeah. to pick up? Yeah. And is it worthwhile and you know glorifying god um some of the cool. some of the sort of uh entertainment versions of the apocalyptic story in other words the left behind books that kind of thing the left behind movies um some people and and i believe they've really done this there's probably youtube videos out there you know but some people have been raptured and taken away and they've left behind a message mm -hmm. to say we're gone and can't tell you what you need to know now, but here's what's going here's on. Here's where you can find out. Yeah. And so, you know, but, but Sarah makes a good point. You know, when it's all said and done, we, you know, there, there's a, you know, when Bill Gates dies, somebody's going to say, how much did he leave behind? And the answer is he left it all. Everything, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if he's the richest man in the world, he left it all. 
And what will he really leave behind of any worth to the world? Well, maybe that Gates Foundation or something. So people who do things that have a lasting legacy of good serve the world in a lot of better ways. And, and their departure leaves behind an important message. And it isn't only wealthy people who do that. It's just that wealthy people leave bigger things behind that are easier to find. But we all have legacies to leave behind. You're my legacy, you know. So I have left a daughter who, you know, I've helped brought, brought this young lady into the world. And she's got, she's my legacy in so many ways. So, so parents, you know, uh, you can teach your kids that their stuff is fun and, and, uh, and, and helps life to be more comfortable and more enjoyable. But what can you teach them that is more important than stuff? You know, what can you give in them, instill in them, that's going to really be what you've left behind? Mm-hmm. Well, so, and just good like, stuff. just, you know, I'd hate, I'd hate to get raptured and then have someone who didn't get raptured be like, well, it, it couldn't have been God because there's no way she was raptured. Like, mm-hmm. that would be horrible. Yeah. So I think it's also just like part of our stuff that we leave behind is like, who were we to people, and did we did we show yep. who we were through God? Yep. So that when we're when we disappear, they're like, oh, you know, there might be something, there might be something to all that stuff that they were involved in because this one's gone, this one's gone, this one's gone, and they they all were doing the same stuff. Yep. So. Well, my dear, we've come up on an hour. Uh, Sarah, I hope that that we gave a a meaningful response to your writing. I just loved your thinking, and I appreciate it so much. And uh, friends, when you read, and I I, I apologize to to somebody who wrote to us a few times recently, well, uh, several weeks ago, and, and I made such a fuss about it, I embarrassed her. And so now she's like, I'm not writing them anything. Well, you don't have to feel bad because... I'm the one who should feel bad. I apologize for, for, you know, embarrassing you. It's just, hopefully by now, if you've listened to this study for a while, you know that what we really get excited about, apart from God's presence in all of this, is the critical thinking. Because what we know is, is that the whole concept of, of knowing God with heart and mind is that you would engage your brain that your faith is what drives you to truth. And once your brain is engaged and your faith is engaged, you're on this incredible journey. Mm-hmm. It's so much fun. Mm-hmm. And, and it only makes you love the Lord more and it only makes you more hopeful about what's coming, even though there are a lot of hardships associated with it. So it's pretty awesome stuff. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Well, I want to thank you all for listening very much. Please keep in mind that you can learn more about this and many other things. You can meet us face to face. If you're in Shiloh on some Sunday or one of our weekday programs, come down to Shiloh in Jasper, Indiana. If you want to know more about us, go to shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M.org. And you can learn a lot there. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Join our Facebook group. Join the conversation. We, we love you and we wish you joy. See you next time. Mm-hmm.